Hey guys, welcome to Theological Eclipping Class 2017 in the fall semester. Before we start, I just want to mention that uh, my wife and I had our baby this week. More her than me, but it's our baby, and so we are... uh, very excited. If I say something weird or stupid, it's because I am exhausted. And so I am running on fumes here this morning. I'm actually off today and and the rest of this week, but I'm coming back just for theological equipping, just because I love you guys so much and I love doing theology. So stay up all night, drink Red Bull. Amen. Yes, that's how I survive. Then I come up here and we're doing theological equipping. So if this is your first time to theological equipping, just want to welcome you. What this is, is it's a chance to dive down deeper into certain doctrines, into certain biblical teachings that we don't always have time to go into in depth in a sermon. What we do in our worship services is we do what's called expository preaching, where we walk line by line through a text and explain it in its original context. This is a chance, though, where we can pick topics and we can dive down deep. So let me give you a few, uh, a few preliminaries and then we'll get started. So last semester, who remembers? what we studied. If nobody, then we have failed and this class is useless, all right? Scripture and hermeneutics, that's right. So before we want to learn more things about God, we've got to know something about the Bible, and we've got to know where we got the Bible and what books belong in the Bible. And then we spent some time in the topic of what's called hermeneutics, which is a fancy $5 impress your friends theological term for how to interpret the Bible. So we spent some time doing that. Now that we've got a foundation, now that we've got a base, We're now able to dive down into what the Bible says on certain topics. And so this semester, we're going to be studying the doctrine of God. That's super important because we worship and love God. This is pretty foundational. And so we think that this will be a really great study. I hope that you guys really enjoy this. Um, Sometimes when you study the doctrine of God, it is called theology proper. Okay, because theology refers to anything dealing with God or the Bible. When you study end times, that's theology. When you study the nature of the church, that's theology. But when you're studying God himself, a lot of times that's called theology proper. And so that's what we're going to be doing this semester. We're going to be learning about the doctrine of God. Now, we are using as kind of a base text, just in case you want to buy a 1,200-page book just to use as a doorstop. Uh, We are using Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology uh, as kind of a base text for this study, but we are by no means shackled to that. I think Grudem is really good in about 95% of things, uh, but we'll go off script a little bit. So we're working through that. Uh, What we're doing in systematic theology is simply this. We're trying to answer the question. Each time we take a topic, each semester, we're trying to answer this question. What does the entire Bible teach on any one subject? Okay? So let's say we were studying salvation, and someone came up to you and they said, what does the Bible teach on how to be saved? And you said something like this. Well, Paul says you're saved by faith alone, but James says you're not saved by faith alone. Is that a helpful answer? No, because God does not contradict himself. So in systematic theology, what we're trying to do is we're trying to say, what does the whole Bible say about salvation? How are we to understand Paul and James together? And so we're doing that as we study the doctrine of God. So as we study the doctrine of God, and by the way, there are some syllabi on that other music stand over by Tim, uh, if you want to grab one on the way out so you know that what we're studying. Uh, but we're, we're going to be studying not just God himself, his attributes, his Trinitarian nature, etc., but we're also going to be studying how God interacts with the world. So we'll be talking about why is there evil if there is a good God. We'll be talking about uh, how can our actions have any real meaning if God has ordained everything. If not even a bird falls from the sky apart from his will, how do I make real decisions? How can he hold me accountable for those things? We'll be talking about prayer If God has already ordained what he's going to do, why do we pray? We'll be talking about miracles. We'll be talking about angels and demons, which will be super weird. All right? It'll be, uh, we'll get into some strange things there. We'll bring up a Wicca person and have them teach. I'm kidding. And, uh, And so it should be a lot of fun this semester. So 
Before we do any of that, though, the, the topic we're starting with today is God's existence. It's really, really important. Here's a really important thing you need to know about God. He exists, okay? Super important, super basic. Everything else we're going to study doesn't matter if that's not true. And so today we're going to be talking a little bit about the existence of God, and we're going to go over some what are considered traditional proofs for the existence of God, okay? This is called, just again, I want to give you terms. By the way, today we're going to go over some fancy terms. I never care if you remember those terms. I don't care if you remember the term. I don't care. That's not, I want you to understand the argument. I want you to understand the point. Okay? So keep that in mind. If I use a word and you don't know what that word means or that's a difficult word, just ignore it. I care that you know the point of what we're talking about, not that you know all the, the fancy jargon or those kind of things. Okay. So today we're going to talk about the existence of God, and this is what is called apologetics. Okay? You might have heard that term before. It's called apologetics. Okay? Why is it called apologetics? It comes from the Greek word apologia, apologia, all right? That means to give a defense. When we think of apologetics, it sounds like we're sorry, like we're apologizing. Sorry, I believe in God. That's not what we mean by apologetics, okay? The Greek word apologia means to give a defense, which is really what you're doing when you say that you're sorry, right? You're telling the person, you should not be mad at me because I'm sorry. That's, you're giving a defense. So if I say something mean to Katie, or I say something just boneheaded or whatever to Katie, what I then do is I give an apologia. I dearest Katie. I would like to present my case before you. You should not be mad at me because I am sorry and I realize the foolishness of my ways, right? And she forgives me. So that's what we're doing. We're doing what's called apologetics. Apologetics is simply defending something, defending the faith. Now, let me give a few caveats here. The point of apologetics, the point of defending the faith, is not to change the heart. It's to shut the mouth, okay? The point of apologetics is not to change the heart. It's to shut the mouth. Can you prove the existence of God? Yes and no. Yes and no. Obviously, God thinks you can prove the existence of God because he says he exists and he gives evidences through what he's created. Romans 1 will say that. So yes, you can very clearly prove the evidence of God, but for a hardened atheist or for someone who's not a Christian or for someone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, it's not as though you're just going to be able to give them these arguments and say, well, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C, and they go, I believe, and they fall down and they worship in tears, Okay? So, yes, you can prove the existence of God. That doesn't mean you can convert an atheist through mere reason alone because the problem, biblically, is not just rational. The problem is spiritual. The Bible's very, very clear on that. Why can I look at the world and say, what a great God, and an atheist look at the world and say, look at all this random mutation? We're looking at the same evidence, but we're starting with a different starting point. So, yes, in a sense, you can prove the existence of God, but that doesn't mean that these arguments will all be persuasive to somebody who's not a believer. What they need is the Holy Spirit. The best thing you can do if someone is an atheist is to give them the gospel. Let Jesus break down their walls, and then you don't have to worry about making all the logical cases. But we want to know these logical cases. We want to know that we have a rational faith, though, because this will encourage our own faith, and what it does is it removes stumbling blocks to belief, all right? It removes stumbling blocks to belief. Okay, so with time, let's jump into everybody's favorite topic, the history of atheism, briefly, okay? Number one, there are very, 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 very few atheists in the ancient world. In fact, I don't know of any society on earth that has ever arisen that has naturally been atheistic. You have to teach man to be an atheist. Mankind is naturally a worshiper. If they don't worship Yahweh, they will worship something. They will make up gods. They will worship ancestors. They will worship spirits within nature. They will worship nature itself. Mankind is naturally a worshiper. 
And so what's interesting is you have to teach man to be an atheist. He's not naturally an atheist. You have to use something like, uh, like in the USSR where you're inculcating into people the idea of atheism. Mankind naturally wants to worship. Mankind sees a sunset and something happens inside of us where we want to turn that glory and that love towards something. And so mankind is naturally a worshiper. Here's what John Calvin says. Therefore, since the beginning of the world, there has been no region, no city, in short, no household that could do without religion. There lies in this a tacit confession of a sense of deity inscribed in the hearts of all. From this we conclude that it is not a sense, I'm sorry, from this we conclude that it is not a doctrine that must first be learned in school, but one of which each of us is a master from his mother's womb, and which nature itself permits no one to forget. So what's really, really interesting is you don't have atheism much in the ancient world. That is a much more modern phenomenon. Now, you have individuals in society, but you don't have whole societies that are typically atheistic. And sometimes when people get charged with atheism, they actually do believe in some sort of deity or God or immaterial being or something like that, right? So Plato gets charged with atheism because he doesn't worship the gods in the traditional way. Christians by Rome, by the way, were called atheists, atheoi, all right? That's what we were called by Rome. Why? Who knows why Christians would be called atheists in the first century? Imagine that you are Roman and you have a pantheon of gods and you worship a bunch of them and then all of a sudden these strange Semitic people start talking about how there's only one God. That's why they're called atheists is because they don't believe in the traditional gods of Rome. They deny all the gods. There's so many gods out there that they deny except for one. And so Jews were called this originally by the Romans, as were Christians. We were actually called atheists. And uh, other than that, after Christianity starts to spread, atheism is very, very, very uncommon. Now, during the Enlightenment, you get this kind of what I'm going to call Elizabethan atheism, which is kind of this refined Benjamin Franklin deism, David Hume philosophy. God doesn't exist, but I'm not going to come out and say that because that's not socially apropos. And so I'm going to make all these arguments and stuff that just shows how the world basically functions on its own and try to leave God out of the picture. But in recent years, all right, within the last 10 years, you've had a rise. I don't know if you know this or not. We're just doing a little, a little sociology. Tim, this is a shout out to you. Tim was a sociology major. Uh, what's, what's interesting is over about the past 10 years or so, you have what's now called the new atheism, which is not like previous atheism. You typically didn't have atheism, and then you had kind of this refined, at least I would tip my hat to God even if I didn't believe in him. And what you've gotten recently is a hard-hearted hatred towards a God they don't believe in, okay? So I'll give you a quote. This is from Richard Dawkins. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. He is, uh, he's kind of the poster child. He's kind of the Michael Jordan of the new atheism. He, uh, he is a mediocre scientist, and he is a terrible philosopher, but here's what he says. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Huh? How about that? little Richard Dawkins for you. This morning, okay? There are four guys that are considered kind of the four horsemen, if you will, the kind of the leaders of what is called the new atheism. Uh, and their names are Richard Dawkins, he's the biggest one. There's a guy named Sam Harris. There's a guy named Daniel Dennett, and then there was a guy, the late Christopher Hitchens. And uh, what's interesting about atheism is it is just violent against God. It hates Christianity. Richard Dawkins thinks that you have a gene in your mind that makes you more inclined to believe in religious things, and he wants to find a way to come in and take out that gene. Okay? He thinks that if you're a Christian or if you're believing in God, your mental faculties are not working. You're mentally deranged. That's what he thinks. Okay? 
Now, what's interesting is on the one hand, we have the new atheism, which really, really, really seems to hate God. There are things like, uh, oh, <laughs> that, uh, that, really, uh, that really seems to hate God. But what's interesting is most people in our culture that are not Christians are not actually atheists. There's some other type of spiritual. And I put quotes around that because I don't know what that means, right? They're, they're kind of Oprah spiritual, Rob Bell spiritual. You be the best job at being you. God is kind of this fairy godmother kind of thing. And so most people in our culture are either somewhat spiritual, and they don't define it. They just kind of make up their religion. Or they are vehement against Christianity. Just go on social media, and you'll see those two opinions constantly expressed. Someone will just give their opinion based on nothing and no history and no arguments, or someone will just, just rag on Christians and wish they just think we are the scum of the earth. That's the culture that we live in. And so with that in mind, I want to give some traditional proofs for God's existence, okay? Some traditional proofs for God's existence. Everybody good so far? I mean, nothing wakes you up in the morning like some sweet atheism, all right? So let's get into some of these arguments. Number one, the first traditional argument or proof for the existence of God is what is called the argument from design. The argument from design. The fancy term, again, you don't have to remember this, but if you want to, the fancy term is the teleological argument. The teleological argument. Why is it called that? This is the Greek word telos. By the way, my handwriting, evidence of the fall, okay? So teleological argument. The Greek word telos means purpose or end goal, okay? Means purpose or end goal. The teleological argument argues that everything has a purpose, that everything seems to have an end goal. That would be strange to have if you did not have some type of intelligent designer. If you did not have some type of creator, then nothing has a goal. So if you talk to someone who is an atheist or someone who believes in macroevolution or something like that, and you say, what is the point of life? And they say, well, it's really just to spread your seed and to make more people and to survive. You then ask, why? Why is everything trying to stay alive? Why is there, and here's a deeper question, why is there something rather than nothing? And they don't have an answer to that because that's a teleological question. It's a question that relates to end goal or purpose. So there's a lot of proponents of this. There's a hints of this in Socrates. But William Paley is the guy that's the big, uh, the, the guy that talks about this the most. Here's the example that he gives. You're walking along on a beach, okay? It's beautiful. There's a sunset, dead jellyfish. For whatever reason, every time I go to the beach, I only step on dead jellyfish. Or if it's a Texas beach, maybe a syringe. And so you're walking across the beach, and all of a sudden, your toe hits something, and it kicks it out of the sand, and you look at it, and it is a wristwatch. A wristwatch, it's, it's got a certain design. It's got straight lines. It, uh, it tells time. It's got all these mechanisms and these kind of things. What he says is, how absurd would you be to say that over millions of years, things just randomly happened to produce a watch? Leather straps, holes that seem to fit around your wrist, gears that keep time perfectly, how absurd would you be? And so he says, okay, now take that and imagine the complexity of a human hand or of a human eye or of the fact that humans can come together and they can create more life. So he said, in the same way that you would never run into a watch on the beach and just assume that randomness created it, that non-design created design, that randomness created order, so you should not look at the world and see all the things that seem to work perfectly and just assume that random things just happen, just chance events, okay? I'll give you a few examples. A lot of people give different examples. I'll just give a few, okay? Your eyebrows. Let's talk about eyebrows. Let's do a theology of eyebrows real quick, okay? Your eyebrows are one of the few places on your body where your hair grows up, okay? I don't know if you know this or not, but your eyebrows don't just grow straight down so that, like, you're sweating just in your eyes. Your eyebrows go up and then over to the side, 
okay? You, did, you don't have to have eyebrows. You could just have this brow, and more sweat would get into your eyes. Why do your eyebrows grow up and out? It's so the sweat hits it and moves it out of your eye. It's not needed. It's not something that's a big enough issue to, for evolution to create it. It's something given to you by God because he loves you. In case you ever doubt God's love, just feel your face. Feel your face. Remember you have eyebrows. People give examples of communication. Think how strange this is right now. Now, this, this, if I think about this too much, it freaks me out, and I go to a dark place. So let me, just, uh, let me just try to explain this. Here I am, and I have some thoughts, which are immaterial. We'll talk about that in a second. So here I am, and I have some thoughts. I open this hole in my face, and I make sounds. I make sounds, okay? You hear these sounds, and then you think the same thought I'm thinking because these sound waves hit your ear because I opened this hole in my face. That's crazy. That is insane. You're laughing, which means you understood me, which is amazing, all right? So we have things like that. We have the fact that if the earth was tilted one more in one direction, everything would freeze and there would be no life. If the earth was tilted a little more in the other direction, everything would burn up and there would be no more life. We have things like gravitational constants, et cetera, et cetera. So one of the, the other big ones when we talk about the teleological argument is the fact that DNA is not like a code. DNA is a code. Now, this is really fascinating. This is like you just wandering on the beach and you run into some sort of computer that has all this binary code and it just seems to work. It'd be very, very strange. Let me say this again. I think this is really important and I think this is a really strong point. DNA is not like a code. It is a code. Without God, you have to say that there is this whole system of perfectly coded mathematics that just seems to work randomly, okay? So there's all these examples. We could use all these kinds of examples. The whole point of the teleological argument is that when you look at the world, there are things that seem to look designed, okay? That seem to look designed. Let me give you a little statistic, okay? Just because if you're one of those people that like statistics, there was a uh, biology professor at Yale and then George Mason University. His name was Harold Merowitz. And he calculated the probability of one tiny living organism coming to be through just random mutation, okay? So this guy, he's not a Christian. He wanted to try to calculate, as a biologist, what would be the chance of getting one single-celled organism to come into existence through just random chance and mutation, okay? He published that the chances of that happening was 10 to the 340 millionth power, okay? That is one chance in 10 with 340 million zeros after it. That's a lot of zeros. It would take your whole life to count the zeros. That's for one single cell organism, out of chance. Mathematically, a random universe is almost impossible. The concept of a, of a uh, random universe is almost always uh, impossible. Now, let's talk about a rebuttal to this. So if you're talking to somebody who's not a Christian and you explain that there's design in the world and therefore God exists, what, what are they going to say? Yeah, they'll say, so let, let's say you grant them that. I don't agree with that, but let's say you grant them that for the sake of argument. Let's say, okay, it's been billions of years, but the, the issue we're talking about is design, not how long it took for the design to get there. So let's say they say, okay, it took a billion years. You're saying there's still design, and they're saying there's no design. What they'll typically say is, Zach, that sounds great. Yes, sunsets are beautiful, and yes, you're opening that hole in your face you keep talking about, and I understand, yes, you have eyebrows. They're really, really sweet. You need to pluck them, whatever. But what about when I look at things that don't look designed? What about when I watch a victim dying of cancer? Or what about when I watch somebody assault somebody else? Or what about when I watch tsunamis and earthquakes and tornadoes? In fact, if God is a creator, he's kind of like an 80% good creator. He's kind of got it, but he kind of messed it up when he was creating. That's what they'll say. Our response to that 
is that that's not how God originally designed the world. That is an effect of sin, okay? When God creates the world originally, there are no tornadoes killing people. There is no cancer and things like this. That comes as a result of the fall. So if they want to point out, yes, there seems to be some design, but what about these things that don't look designed? We have a response to that. Let me be really clear, by the way, without getting too political or uh, social on this. We live post-Genesis 3, so nothing is natural like it originally was, okay? You can't look at how things happen in nature and say, oh, this is, this is natural. This is how things should be because we live in a broken world. What's natural are mothers eating their young in nature and animals attacking each other and these kind of things, okay? So I think we forget a lot of times what people do is they will look to nature and they'll say, we see this in nature, therefore it must be good and right and normal. And we need to say, no, nature is broken. That's like going into a house after there's been an earthquake and you've never seen a house before and you think, oh, I guess these cracks are supposed to be in the wall. Let's make more houses with cracks in them. No, the world is broken, okay? Now, they'll respond in other ways. Sometimes they'll say that it, it doesn't mean that God designed it. It just means that it looks designed. I don't, I, uh, I don't think that's a real strong argument because uh, I think that, that you can show that there seems to be things that more than look designed. Uh, they'll say things like, how do we not know that there are several gods then who made the universe, right? If you want to use this argument to show that, that God or something had to create everything, how do we not know that there's multiple gods? And at that point, I just let them know, wait a second, if I can get you to at least agree there's multiple gods, I've already won the argument. I'm not trying to here prove the only Christian God in the universe. I'm just trying to move you from atheism to theism. Once I do that, then I'll tell you who Jesus is. And I'll tell you why there can only be one most powerful being and have the idea of other gods is ridiculous. So that argument doesn't work because what they're doing there is they're then saying, okay, let, let me grant that there are gods or uh, God. And if you do that, I've already won the argument. At that point, I'm like doing cartwheels and I'm like, I've moved you from atheism to theism. Now we can figure out the rest, okay? Um... Okay, now let me give you some Bible verses that actually teach what's called the teleological argument. So I want to show you that what we're talking about today is not just some random philosophy, but it's something the Bible teaches. Romans 1, 19 through 20. Here's what Paul says. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Okay, pop quiz real quick. According to the Bible, is anyone truly an atheist? No. People suppress the truth in unrighteousness because they don't like it. The issue is not a mental issue. It is not a logical issue. The issue is a spiritual issue. If you don't like God or you feel condemned or something bad happened when you were a kid and you lost your mother or whatever it is and you're mad at God, you then have to find a way to justify your hatred of God and that justification of that hatred is atheism. For what can be known about God is plain to them. The issue is not that they can't see it, it's that they suppress it because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The issue is not that there's not existence or proof for God. There's an overwhelming amount of existence. It's whether or not you come to that evidence with jaundiced eyes or whether or not you see that evidence clearly by the Spirit. Isaiah 40, 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. <clears throat> Psalm 19, 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Okay, pop quiz, what is the teleological argument? Gabe. Yeah, and how does the Christian convince the atheist? What evidence does he give? Yeah, design. He gives the evidence of design. Yeah, very good. So the teleological argument is simply the argument from design. Okay? Very good. 
Okay, number two. You guys ready? Is this, is this, is this fun? Okay, who cares if it's spiritual? Is it fun? That's what I want to know. Okay. Number two, the argument from universal morality. The argument from universal morality, okay? This is what's called the moral argument. I didn't put the word moral up there because I think we all know what that means, the moral argument. Uh, The fancy term for this is the axiological argument. I just say that to be pretentious. You don't need to know that, okay? The moral argument for God's existence. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks a lot about this. Calvin talks about what's called the sensus divinitatis, that within all of us there's a natural sense of the divine, which we've been talking about. Uh, That doesn't mean we are God or anything like that. What it means is our heart naturally knows there's a creator. So here is the argument, though, okay? In every culture that's ever existed, again, there are certain rules about morality, okay? In every culture. Now, some cultures will allow you to kill for some reasons that other cultures won't allow you to kill for, but every culture agrees you can't just go kill anybody you want whenever you want, okay? So some cultures will have tribal warfare, and some cultures will commit ritual suicide, and some cultures will do these other things, but every culture agrees that there are some rules around killing, You can't just walk up to the emperor and stab him with a spear or something like that. There's some sort of rules when it comes to killing. Every culture that's ever existed has some sort of rules when it comes to things like sexual ethics, all right? Some cultures will allow you to have one wife. Other cultures will allow you to have a bunch of wives. But there's no culture that just says you can have whatever woman you want any time that you want, even if she belongs to another man. That guy will try to fight you, okay? So what's interesting is... Though they differ across cultural lines, there's something, that's uni- there's something that's consistent about that. Why does every culture say certain forms of killing are wrong? Why does every culture say certain forms of sexual ethics, uh, certain forms of uh, types of sexual grievances are wrong? Why does every culture do that? And what C.S. Lewis goes on to say is he goes on to say is there is something deeper within the heart of man that knows that certain things are right and wrong because God has put that within us. Now, it doesn't mean you can't find a few crazies. Lewis, C.S. Lewis even says that. You can go into some culture, and some guy will just think, yeah, we should kill everybody, all right? But he says, on the whole, the society has a tendency not to believe that, that every culture that's ever risen, doesn't matter whether they're Western or Eastern or Christian or non-Christian or whatever it is, they have some sort of sense of universal morality, okay? Thieves do not like to be stolen from, okay? Adulterers don't like it when you cheat on their wife, Even among pirates, there's a pirate code, right? You can rape and pillage and plunder and burn cities to the ground, but you better respect your fellow pirate because if you don't, guess what? You've done something bad, all right? And so the the point that, uh, that Lewis and even Calvin makes is that there is something inside of us that seems to be not just random mutation. Why, why would humans agree to that? Why is there some sort of universal standard of morality? This is what's called the argument, or the moral argument or the axiological argument. Here's what's interesting. When I cut in, in line, which I, I don't do, this is a hypothetical. If I cut in line and somebody gets mad at me, they're not just saying, I don't like what you did. They're saying what you did is wrong, okay? If I murder somebody and a judge sentences me to go to prison, They're not just saying, we don't like what you did. We're saying, what you did was wrong. It was bad. It was evil. Without the moral argument, ethics just becomes social opinion. If you can get enough people in Germany in the 1940s to think that Jews are bad, then you can just gas them. Without the moral argument, you don't have a standard of morality. And so what Lewis wants to point out is to say, but wait a second, we do have this standard of morality. We do, even somebody who is just hardened and evil, the first time they kill somebody, it affects them. Where does that come from? And he says that comes from God, okay? 
Now, I think that's a good argument. I think the Bible uses that argument. Let me give you, uh, let me give you Romans 1.32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what the Bible is going to say, so the Bible holds to both the teleological and the moral argument. The Bible is going to say that we know God exists from what's been made, and we know God exists because when we sin, we feel guilty. There's something in us that's, that, that realizes something's broken. Okay? Now, the response to this is the moral argument shows that there is some type of standard of morality that's in the favor of the Christian. What the moral argument can't do is get into the minutia. It can't get into the small details. What about homosexuality? All right? When is it okay to kill? These kind of things, okay? So that's the moral argument. Now, everybody good so far? This is heady. We're doing a lot of philosophy. We're gonna get into a lot more scripture next time, okay? I'm gonna come back again tired because of the baby. She just will not stop eating for some reason. She just wants to eat. I guess she wants to survive because of teleology, all right? She wants to survive. But I'll be back next week, and we will be in a lot more scripture. Today, we're just building a framework. So everybody good? Do we need to take a big breath? Uh, okay, clear, clear your mind. Number three. So the first two, very clearly in Scripture. The first two, very easy to understand. Now we're going to get into two that are a little bit trickier, okay? I think these next two are brilliant, but we're going to talk about these. Everybody with me? Okay. I'm so insecure. I need a better response. I need y'all to give me a ton of amens and, like, throw a handkerchief and stuff. There we go. Okay, all right. Okay, number three. The argument from causation. The argument from causation. Aristotle has a version of this argument. Thomas Aquinas has a version of this argument. Leibniz has a version of this argument. Islamic scholars have a version of this argument called the Kalam cosmological argument. What is the argument? Well, first of all, I want to give you its name. The cosmological argument comes from the Greek word cosmos, which means the universe, okay? The universe, everything that's, that, that is, the cosmos. What this argument is is to say that there has to be a first cause that starts everything else, okay? So, so let's, let me just give you a few examples. So let's say that, how did I get, let me do it this way. How did I get here to church today? Who knows? Who can guess? Vehicle, okay? Uh, where was the vehicle before that? At my house, okay? Uh, so I was in the house before that. Before that, I was in an apartment. Before that, I married Katie. Before that, I was a little baby. Before that, I was born. Before that, my parents were born. And then it goes back, all right? Every effect has a cause. How could you get to today, how could you get to the effects of today if there was not a first cause, if there was not something that started that whole series and whole chain of events? That's the cosmological argument, okay? Is that because every effect has a cause, if you trace that back, eventually you have to come to a starting point. You have to come to what's called an unmoved mover. You have to come to what is an uncaused cause. You have to have something or someone or something that pushes that first domino, and so all the other dominoes fall, okay? Now, here, does everybody understand the argument? Okay, you can't have, okay, so every effect has a cause, and the causes go back, and you need a first cause. Now, why can you not have an infinite universe? Why can you not just have an infinite series of cause backwards? So here we are today, and then I was born, and my parents were born, and their parents were born, and their parents were born, and then there was no humans, and then there was the earth. And you, why, why can't you just go on for infinity? Why can you not have just this infinite regress? Here's the reason. Because you would have never gotten to today if you had to traverse an infinite amount of causes. <laughs> okay, let's back up. Okay. So, no effect can be its own cause. 
that has to go back, all right? Even in physics, this is the case. One atom bumps another atom, which bumps another atom, which bumps another atom, etc. So if you go all the way back, you cannot have an infinite number of causes and effects or else you would have never gotten to today. How long does it take to cross infinity? Who knows? Infinity, right? So let me, let me say it this way. Let's say I have 10 feet of dominoes, okay? How far do you have to walk to hit the first domino, which knocks over the rest? 10 feet, okay? Let's say I have infinity feet of dominoes. How long do you have to walk until you can get to the very first domino to knock that one over? You never get there. Now, this is really strong. This is really important. It means that you cannot have just an infinite mechanical universe, you cannot have, so let's just say we have a clump of stuff. This is a clump of stuff, and it's made up of, I don't know, gases and whatever out in the universe, and eventually it's going to explode into a big bang. This cannot exist for eternity because it would never get to the big bang. It would still be going. It's like trying, how long does it take you to count to infinity? Infinity. You can't. How long does it take you to go backwards in infinity? Infinity. You can't. If you count to a thousand, you are no closer to infinity than when you began. Okay? So, you cannot have an infinite universe. You have to have a starting point, logically. You have to have a starting point. Well, what someone will say then is, then how come, what about God? What, if you're saying that, if God's the starting point, why doesn't he just go on for infinity? Well, because God is outside of time. God stands above all these kind of things. God is not a material creation. So what I'm saying is, you can have God as the first mover, the first thing that starts everything else, because he eternally exists outside of time. What you can't have is material in time that goes on forever. You can't have material in time that goes on forever. If you have questions, jot them down. I know this one is a little bit tricky. Does that make sense what I'm saying? The whole point is scientifically, you cannot have material that just exists forever, which means the universe had to have a cause. And that cause can't be material or else that would exist for forever and we would never have gotten to today. So the cause has to be something that is immaterial, something that is infinite, something that stands outside of time something that is the first cause that causes all the other causes, okay? And that we would call God. What that argument does is it doesn't get an atheist to fall on their face and love Jesus. It gets them to realize there must be something outside of just the physical universe, though. It gets them to realize there must be something outside of the physical universe. Does the Bible teach this? I think it does. I think there's even hints of this in certain biblical passages. Let me give you a few here. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. He is the creator. He's the cause that starts all the other effects. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Okay? Or Romans 11.36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Okay? So the Bible's going to be very clear that there is just God, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, just for all eternity. And then when he creates, everything else material begins, okay? Everything material begins. Everybody good? Okay. Is it hot in here or am I just yelling? Okay. Number four. Now, this one, the next one I'm going to mention is very tricky. So if you've gotten what I've said so far, that's the goal for this morning, okay? I'm going to give you one that's kind of advanced, that's kind of tricky, and we're going to hopefully try to blow your mind, stretch your mind a little bit. Uh, but if you don't understand what I'm about to say, that's totally fine. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you. What I'm about to say, scholars debate a lot, and there's a lot of ink spilled on this, and it's very difficult to understand. Uh, so if you get these first three, what is teleological argument? What is that? Design. What is the moral argument? 
Yeah, there's some sort of universal standard. Yeah, morality. <laughs> Jesus, right? So there's some sort of universal standard of morality that exists in the heart of men. What is the cosmological argument? Yes, the, yes, there, there, you cannot have an infinite series of causes and effects or else you'd never have gotten to today, but we are to today. So you had to have a start, and that start can't be physical because physical things fall within that rule I just gave for physical things, which is they can't be infinite. And then, to, now we're going to go on to the trickiest one. Now, we have a blog on this one that has a big picture of a unicorn that Tim put on it. For whatever reason, Tim loves unicorns. And, uh, and so you can check out the ontological argument uh, online, but I want to give you this argument. The fourth one is the argument from being, or what is called the ontological argument. Man, there's a $5 term. Impress your date, okay? Ontological argument. Comes from the Greek word ontos, which means being. Okay? It is an argument from the very being of God. Okay? It was first put forward by a guy named St. Anselm. When you talk about some of the smartest people in the world, you would include Anselm on there. St. Anselm, he didn't call it the ontological argument. Uh, for years, it was not called the ontological argument. That's a weird, confusing term that comes later from a guy named Immanuel Kant. Uh, but with, uh, with uh, Anselm, people just called it the argument of Anselmi. Ar- Anselm's argument. Okay? Now, here is the argument. It's basically this that God necessarily exists, okay? A cat, which is the opposite of God, a cat does not necessarily exist. A cat could exist or not exist. God could have created more cats or he could have created less cats, okay? I don't necessarily exist. God didn't have to create a Zach Lee or something like that. God's nature is not like that. It's, it's not like a cat, all right? He must exist. He necessarily exists. A cat is a contingent being. It could either be or not be. God must be. So here's the argument. We're going to do some, uh, some mental uh, experiments here. I'm going to do this. <clears throat> I'm going to give each of you in here a unicorn. Okay? Why am I thinking about that? Because I have a daughter, and I already want to give her a unicorn. Because I've just wrapped around her little finger, which is tiny, by the way. Okay? So I'm going to give everybody in here a unicorn. You ready for it? Okay, here, I'm going to give you this gift. I, I, you're not very excited. I'm going to give you a unicorn. You should be freaking out. All right? There we go. That's pro- Yes, yes, hands up. That's what I want to see. So close your eyes for a second and think of the unicorn. Close your eyes. Think of the unicorn. Think of uh, how much magic it has. Think of its long flowing mane, whatever color you want, pink, green, whatever you need. Think of its sparkly horn. All right, it's, it better be, it, whatever you're thinking, I need like 10 times more sparkles, okay? You're thinking of this. Okay, now open your eyes. There you go. I just gave you a unicorn made of thoughts. You're welcome. You're welcome. You say, wait a second, Zach. That's the worst gift ever. I don't want a a unicorn made of thoughts. I want an actual unicorn, right? Hang on to that for a second because we're going to come back to that. The point I'm trying to make in that, I've got to make several steps here. The point I'm trying to make there is something that exists in reality is better than something that just exists in your mind. Can we agree with that? That a real unicorn would be better. Would you rather have a million dollars mentally or would you rather actually have a million dollars? You'd rather actually have a million dollars. Something is better for sure if it exists in reality and not just in your mind. Can we all agree with that? Okay. Now, hang on to that. Put that back someplace weird wherever you put your other unicorn files. We're going to come back to that in a second. So now here's the argument. Let me give you the argument real quick, and then we'll spend a lot of time unpacking it. When we think of God, so think about for a second of what we mean when we say God. When we think of God, we need to think of a being who is infinitely loving. His love's not like our, like ours. His love is unlimited. It's infinite. We think of God as infinitely good. We think of God as infinitely gracious. 
We think of God as existing for all eternity, above time, or whatever it is. When we think of God, we think of a being who has all these good attributes to the highest degree, right? Okay? So think in your mind for a second. So here's my first question. Can you think of a being that has all the best attributes to the highest degree, what are called perfections? Yeah, that's what we think of when we think of God, okay? So that's step one. Everybody agrees. Yes, when I think of God, though I can't actually grasp infinity with my mind, I get the idea, the concept of a God who is unending, right? Everybody got that so far? Okay, that's step one. Step two, then, would be this. Would it be greater for this God you're thinking of to exist just in your mind or also in reality as well? It would be greater for him to exist in reality as well for the same reason that a real unicorn is better than a mental unicorn. Therefore, God exists. Okay, what? What is just happening? What are we doing? What are we talking about? Why are we here? Why aren't we talking about the Bible? Let me explain this one more time, okay? The point that Anselm is trying to make is that you can't think of God as not existing. When you try to think of God as not existing, you commit a logical contradiction. Let me give you another example. Ready? Think of a square circle. Go for it. Go ahead and think of one. Think of it. Think of it the best you can. Does that image you're thinking of in your mind have any lines or, or corners? Because if so, it's not a circle. Does that image you're thinking of in your mind have any slants or curves? Because if so, it's not a square. You can't think of a square circle. Okay? It's impossible. In the same way, you cannot think of God as not existing. When you do that, you've committed some sort of mental logical fallacy. His whole point is, in a sense, he doesn't really have to prove the existence of God. The existence of God is a given. All right, it's a given. God must exist. For anything else to exist, God must exist. Now, you say, wait a second, Zach. Now, there, there was a monk. So Anselm, when he writes this argument, he starts out with a passage from the Psalms that says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And then he goes on to praise God and he explains this ontological argument, okay? Well, there was a monk who wrote against Anselm and he called his response the reply of the fool. And he writes to Anselm and he says, I'm gonna paraphrase, his name is Guanilo. You don't need to remember that. Guanilo writes to Anselm and he says, wait a second, Anselm. Let's pretend that I'm thinking of the most perfect island. The water is super blue. There's the most number of palm trees you can have without it getting weird. There's the most number of hula girls. There's the most number of beautiful sunsets. It's the perfect island. It's the perfect island. Therefore, then, that island must exist because it would be better for that island to exist in reality and not just in my mind. You with me so far? That's what Guanilo says. He says, wait a second. Are you saying that just because you can think of a being that's perfect, therefore that being has to exist in reality? And Anselm says, no, 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 no. You've misunderstood me. That's not what I'm saying. What Anselm is not, Anselm is not saying, if you can think of a really great thing, it must exist. That's not what he's doing. He's showing that in the first question I asked you, you said that you could think of a God that had all these attributes to the highest degree, but then you turn right around and you contradict yourself by saying he might not really exist in reality. Well, go back to step one and think of God as the highest being. He has goodness to the highest degree and existence to the highest degree and love to the highest degree. We got that? Step one? Then how can you go on to step two and say he might not exist in reality? He might just exist in your mind. It doesn't make any sense. What Anselm is doing is he's saying, you're contradicting yourself by trying to think of a God that doesn't exist. You're thinking of a being that has to exist, and at the same time, you're trying to think of him as maybe not really existing. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. His whole point, so, oh, man. Okay, so, if you're confused, read the blog. I think it'll be helpful. Here's his whole point, though. His whole point is 
that God necessarily exists. It's part of God's nature to exist. This is what Thomas Aquinas will mean when he says that God's essence is his existence, meaning God must exist. This is a different kind of argument because this doesn't try to prove to the atheist that God, it says to the atheist, you can't think of a non-existing God. It starts with saying God has to exist because that's what we mean by definition when we talk about God. If you're thinking of a God that might not exist, you're not thinking about God, okay? I don't have to exist. God has to exist. Read the blog. There's some more information there, and I give another argument if that's really confusing. This is a tricky one. So again, if you're like, what is he talking about? If I hear the word ontological, I'm going to punch somebody, all right? Don't worry about that. This is very difficult, very, very tricky. Read the blog. It is called uh, Anselm Unicorns and the Ontological Argument. I think something like that. So check it out online. Uh, we, we go through these things. I make you think of another unicorn. Okay, now, is there anything in the Bible that would say this? Uh, I think there is a verse actually that hints at this. I put it on here. Psalm 92. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Now, obviously, the Bible not, doesn't say, thou shalt believe in the ontological argument. What the Bible does is it presents God in a way to where you must acknowledge he exists. It just starts there. It's, it's, it's axiomatic, okay? It's axiomatic. Whew. That's my favorite one, by the way. I think it's irrefutable. I think if you write out each premise, premise one, Think of a being that has all the greatest attributes, that we call that being God. Premise two, that being would be greater if it existed in reality and not just in your mind. Premise three, then, God exists. It's irrefutable. There's actually a famous uh, atheist named uh, Bertrand Russell. He's one of the greatest uh, analytical philosophers of the 1900s. And there was a time he was walking around on campus, and he would always smoke this pipe on campus. And he was walking around, and he was thinking about the ontological argument and he stopped in the middle of it, and he threw his pipe, and he said, the ontological argument is true, but unpersuasive. So the whole point is, what's interesting about the argument is it seems kind of weird. Like, it, when you break it all down, it's valid logically. What it says is true. It doesn't commit any logical fallacies. It's right, but you're not going to convince an atheist by what I just said. I'm not going to sit like at Starbucks with an atheist and be like, now wait a second. Think of a being that's the greatest being. And he's like, oh, and he just weeps and we play just as I am on my phone as we pray at the table, right? That's not gonna happen. But that's not the point. When, when Anselm writes this argument, he's not trying to convince an atheist. He's praising God for one of God's attributes, which we have a tendency not to think about very much, which is God's necessary self-existence, okay? Okay, let's talk about some issues and proofs against atheism or some problems with atheism, okay? Number one, you cannot disprove that God exists. It's very hard to prove a negative like that. You can't disprove that God exists, okay? When I, if I talk to an atheist or something and I say, tell me why you don't believe in God, what they'll say is they'll say, well, there's all this evil in the world. And then I say, okay, well, God exists and he's just evil. Now you're stuck. I don't really hold God as evil. Tim, don't cut that uh, little audio clip and turn it into me saying something weird, okay? My point when I say that to them is to say, all, now we're debating what kind of God is there, but you, have to, you haven't disproved God's existence by simply saying there's evil in the world. If God is big enough to have evil in the world, he's big enough to have a reason why he has allowed evil in the world, okay? We'll talk more about that when we talk about the problem of evil. Other people will say, that, okay, tell me why you don't believe in, uh, in God, and they'll say, well, I believe in evolution. And then I say, okay, then let's pretend for a second that God just used evolution to create things. You haven't disproven God. I'm not saying that I hold that, by the way, 
I'm saying for the sake of argument with this person, I'm trying to get them to realize the things that they're trying to bring as charges against God don't work. They don't prove his disexistence or something like that. Or I'll say, why don't you believe in God? And they'll say, well, the Bible has errors. And I'll say, great, the Bible has so many errors. Why don't you believe in God? The point I'm trying to make to them is not that I believe the Bible has errors. I'm an inerrantist. I believe the Bible has no errors, okay? The point I'm trying to make to that person is to say, you keep picking on these little things. Let's talk about those things. But none of those things disproves the existence of God. We're talking about whether or not God exists. That's the question we're asking first. After I get you to agree with that, then we can talk about who is this God and how has he revealed his word and all of that. I'm just trying to get them from point A to point B, not from point A to point Z in one step, okay? Number two, without God, there is no meaning to anything in life. When Leibniz asked the question, why is there something rather than nothing? That's a really good question. Why, why is there just not nothingness? If God doesn't exist, why would there be anything at all? It doesn't make any sense. There is no purpose to life without God, period, okay? People will say things like, well, I think the point of life is just to live. That doesn't mean anything. That's you just verbally throwing up, okay? Well, I think the meaning of life is to make it what you want. Why? So you can die and you don't remember it and no one remembers you? Who cares? There is no point to life without God. And you can't answer the question of how everything got started. You can't answer the question of where it's going. Science doesn't answer the why questions, by the way. Science is restricted to talking about the material world. That's what science does. It is built on empiricism. It's what I can take in through my senses. It's what I can prove through scientific demonstration. That doesn't answer the question of what makes something moral or not. What does it mean to be? Who is God? Where is life going? Science can't answer those questions. That's not in the realm of science. Science answers the what question, not the why question. Number three, God is a non-material being, so you can't critique him using material methods. So if I go up to an atheist and I'm talking to him, I know it sounds like I talk to a bunch of atheists. I do talk to some atheists for some reason. Uh, but if I were to go up to an atheist and I were to say, he would were, he were say something like this, prove to me that God exists. I would have to ask him, what kind of proof do you want? Do you want me to mix some chemicals together and God pops out? Because God's not a material being. I'd believe in God if I could see him. Even if he exists, you can't see him. He's invisible. He's infinite. He's eternal. He is unlike everything else you're trying to compare him to, which is just the stuff he's created. The creator is not like the creation. And so you can't critique God's existence using scientific. He's not a material being. If he existed, you couldn't see him anyway. All right? Number four. How does the atheist know that they're right? How can the atheist trust their mind? Well, here's what I mean by this one. If macroevolutionary theory is true, and we just all evolved from a bunch of goo, then your mind did not evolve to find truth. It evolved to stay alive. Let me say that again. If there is no God, and we just all came out of material goo, whatever, from evolution, then you cannot trust your mind to find truth. You can only trust your mind to keep you alive. So how does the atheist even start making arguments? They, they couldn't even trust the thing they're using to make arguments because it did not evolve to know truth. It just evolved to not get eaten, okay? And then I'll say something like this. I know this is really philosophical. All of our classes will not be this philosophical, okay? This will probably be the most philosophical one. So just take heart. Bible is coming. Yay for Bible, okay? Bible is good. Now, we use our mind in the Bible, but it's a little different than this. One of the things that uh, you can say is you can say something like, if you don't know everything, you cannot know anything for sure. That's true, by the way. If you don't know everything, 
there could be something out there that you don't know that contradicts what you think that you do know. So I will ask them, could God not exist out there in that space? Could God not be out there in one of the things you don't know? We as Christians don't have to worry about that, right? It is true that if you don't know everything, you can't know anything for sure, but what if there is a being who does know everything and he tells you how things are? Then you can know it for sure, okay? That's where the spot we're in as Christians. Number five, there are other things that exist that you cannot see. Okay, I like this one a lot. This is gonna get real weird. Okay. Um, There are a bunch of things that exist in the world that you cannot see, that you cannot perceive with your senses, okay? We hold that as Christians. We have a soul. We believe in God. We believe in angels. We believe in all these kind of things. But even if you're not a Christian, let me just name some things. Thoughts, concepts, existence. Let me give you another thing. Again, I'm trying to weird most of you guys out. Trying to break you out of your Newtonian way of thinking, okay? Think of that unicorn again. You there? Everybody got that unicorn? Again, more sparkles on the horn. Unicorn, okay? You got it? If we were to crack open your head and use all kinds of microscopes and scientific instruments, would we ever see the unicorn? No, we would just see chemical patterns. We'd see electrical firings, but we wouldn't see the unicorn. Only you can see that in your mind right now. That is an immaterial thing that is not physical, that is not scientifically perceivable. If you're th- it's not as though when, when a, a, a neurologist or whatever does brain surgery and they crack open their head, whatever that person was thinking about, those little creatures jump out or something, right? At least you hope not. At least you hope not. Thoughts are immaterial. How about this? Numbers. Numbers freak me out because we all believe in numbers, but you've never actually seen one. Sure, I've seen a number, Zach. Look, two. That's not a number. That is a picture of a number. That is what's called a numeral. You can't actually see the number two It's immaterial. What does it taste like? What does it smell like? How big is two? You ever been walking across the street and you just get attacked by four? (laughs) Never happens. Why? Because numbers are immaterial. Okay, I could go into a lot of other things. I'm not going to. I just want to say that there's a whole host of things that even if you're not a Christian, you actually believe exist, even though you cannot see, taste, touch, or use any of your senses to perceive them. And then lastly, without God, there is no standard of morality. We've already talked about that. I sat down one time at a coffee shop with a guy who was an atheist. He emailed me and said, hey, I want to I chat about God, but don't, don't try to convert me. I just want to ask questions. I said, cool, let's do that. So we sat down over coffee. And uh, I basically, at the end of the argument, ended up saying to him, you have to say, if what you're saying is true, you have to say that assaulting a child is not morally wrong. It's just something society doesn't like. Right, Because to say that there's an ultimate right or wrong is to appeal to a standard, i.e. God. So I said, if you're not going to do that, you just have to say that assaulting a child is just frowned upon. We don't like it, but we can't say it's bad. When we say it's bad, we just mean that society disapproves of it. Would you say that? And he said, yes. And I said, thank you for being consistent. You're wrong, and you're a crazy person, but you're consistent. What I don't get is the atheist who tries to be good. That's what I don't get. The issue is not, can you be good without God? It's without God, can you even define good? I don't believe in God because all the bad things I see in the world, you don't even get to call those things bad without God. You just get to call those things, I don't like it. It's not, it doesn't make me feel good. You need God as a universal standard of morality. Jeff, come up here and we're gonna do some Q&A. While Jeff comes up here, I wanna end by just saying this real quickly. I don't think any of these arguments are the issue. I am what is called a presuppositionalist. Here's what I mean by that. People will end where they begin. 
If I'm talking to an atheist, when he looks at the evidence, he's not going to see God. You know why? Because his presupposition is that God doesn't exist. When I look at the, the evidence as a theist, I'm going to conclude God exists. Why? Because I already started with the presupposition that God existed. So when you're arguing between a Christian and an atheist, it's not like you're going to this third morally neutral ground where you can just look at the facts. Rather, you're both arguing from pre-assumptions. And your job is to figure out whose pre-assumptions are more consistent. 